Hey everyone! Today's quantum physics book is being adapted into an animated movie where a long-haired princess feels spooky action at a distance. It's called Entangled. Our book is Helgoland by Carlo Rovelli. Ugh. I think the Venn diagram of people who might like that joke <laughs> is narrow. Is just a circle, Dave. <laughs> it has to be people who like tangled quantum mechanics and puns. <laughs> It's just you. And I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, or am I only a father when I'm playing with my kids? All this, plus more questions that this book asks but doesn't really answer. <laughs> and I'm David Vance. I've been learning about quantum physics in my increasingly desperate attempts to be cool. Helgoland takes a weird, trippy topic like quantum physics and breaks it down in a way that makes it so much weirder. <laughs> and this is The Book Pile. All right, here's your reminder to rate and review The Book Pile, or in the spirit of quantum physics, we'll perform a double slit experiment on your throat. <laughs> Frankie D93 says... <laughs> That sounds like a white rapper from the 80s. <laughs> Who named himself after a radio station. <laughs> My wife and I discovered this podcast a few months ago, parentheses, found out as fans of Kellen's comedy. Credit to me again. And have been catching up steadily on back episodes. The banner between Erskine and Vance, my name first, reviewing a wide range of genres and popularity levels, parentheses, from discussing a serious biography of Da Vinci to giving a playful roast of Dan Brown. Just want to let you know, Frankie D., it was not playful for me. <laughs> it was personal. <laughs> Finally, our next two books are The Grapes of Wrath and Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey, where I'm going to say his catchphrase wrong to annoy Kellen. That's correct. That's correct. That's correct. And if you want to see me live, I'm going to be in Fairbanks, Alaska. April 20th to the 23rd. Go to KellenErskine.com for tickets. And grab a seaplane to get there. <laughs> if you were there and a bank screwed you over, wouldn't you be so pissed? <laughs> Fairbanks was definitely named by a very oppressive bank. <laughs> it's like Greenland. It's sister city too. We won't take advantage of you insuranceville. <laughs> All right, and without further ado, here are four lessons that we took from Helgoland. All right, lesson one. You don't hate science, you hate the experience you had with it. I have this theory lately that science kind of gets stamped out of us because every kid sort of loves science. You know, they, they love animals and dinosaurs. And if you take a kid to one of those science museums, they lose their freaking mind. <laughs> but then as adults, most of us... You bring up math or science and we're like, you know, that's assault. <laughs> and what I love about Carlo Rovelli's writing is he makes you feel the wonder of science again. He says, every cell is a city, every protein a castle of atoms, and each atomic nucleus an inferno of quantum dynamics is stirring. This is only a small wood on a small planet that revolves around a little star among 100 billion stars in one of the thousand billion galaxies constellated with dazzling cosmic events. Isn't that so much more fun? 
than a teacher telling you to memorize Avogadro's constant without telling you why. (laughs) (laughs) I think about this too when people are having an existential crisis and they just look to the cosmos to define like their insignificance uh, compared to the size of everything else. But it's insane because if anything, the reality is we're right in the middle because we are the size of a galaxy compared to what exists in the quantum realm. Mm. So it's like, if you want to feel better about yourself, just compare yourself to things that are smaller than you. That's what I do. (laughs) Or maybe when a quark is feeling existential, it looks at your butt. (laughs) (laughs) He also does a great job of explaining big concepts in very concrete ways. He says, A countless number of our definitions are relational. A mother is a mother because she has a child. A planet is a planet because it orbits a star. Even time exists only as a set of relations. I'm going to push back a little bit because I do agree that like in the last half of the book, he does talk about what things mean with concrete examples. But the first half, there was a lot of just quantum theory. Um, Mm. that only took place like at the atomic level and about 20% of it that went over my head. But that's cool that you find boring things interesting. (laughs) That was on my Tinder bio. (laughs) (laughs) And and I just sounded like one of our reviews. (laughs) And I sound like me still taking it as a compliment. (laughs) You're like, you find boring things interesting. And I'm like, thank you. (laughs) Anyway, the the author, as he's talking about science, also tells jokes, which is more than I ever got in a physics textbook. Anyway, if you're an adult and you hate science, I think you might like it a lot more once the wonder is put back in. So my little challenge today is go to YouTube, type in the channel Veritasium, and just watch one video, just whatever looks most interesting. That's what I think is funny, too, about blanket statements like in high school when a friend of mine would say, I hate chemistry. Uh Uh-huh. Because it's like, oh, you hate eating things and touching things and feeling (laughs) dopamine rushes. Like, you don't hate chemistry, if anything, is what we love the most. Right. Like, most of our decisions, good and mostly bad, are based off of chemical reactions. (laughs) Like, what what you hate is the anti-dopamine rush of having to (laughs) memorize inorganic chemical charts. (laughs) Taught by, perhaps, a teacher who finds no joy in it. (laughs) Actually, my my high school chemistry teacher was amazing. He was like a multimillionaire who retired and taught chemistry because he loved it. (laughs) And he was really spacey. And he would tell us the reason was because he did a lot of pot in high school. (laughs) (laughs) That's crazy because the author of this book said that he credits his use of LSD to sparking his interest in theoretical physics. Wow. And I just wonder, I think sometimes we misassign causation. <laughs> like, I think I think both of these guys were just into science and drugs. <laughs> I know plenty of stoners who don't care about quantum physics. <laughs> I'd be like a professional baseball player saying, you know, what really got me into baseball was uh, chewing tobacco. (laughs) All right. Lesson two. The best way to learn quantum mechanics is from a comedian who kind of gets it. 
I'm once again going to give a huge disclaimer. Quantum mechanics is so trippy and complicated. I know I'm going to get something wrong. I'm just a, a comedian doing his best. But the reason is I have to get it a little wrong so no listener goes out and builds a nuke. <laughs> it's like how in Breaking Bad they had to mess up the meth cooking process just a little. So with that caveat, let's dive into this very weird topic. Quantum mechanics basically describes how when you go really small, the world gets super weird. And here's an example. If I throw you a baseball, you pretty much always know where the baseball is. And also now you're my son. <laughs> but if I, if I throw you something a lot smaller, like an electron, because I have a weak arm, you don't know where it is. <laughs> There's something called the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle that says, first, you can never fully know the location and momentum of an object. Second, there comes a point where you, the more you know the location, the less you know the momentum and vice versa. And third, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle says you don't know if your chem teacher husband is a drug dealer. <laughs> so if if we're playing catch with an electron, at a certain point, the more you know about where it is, the less you know about how fast it's going and vice versa. Mm. And apparently that's a law of the universe. Isn't that wild? <laughs> it is. It actually makes a lot of sense to me. I compare it to the example of... When I'm cooking a steak and I shove the thermometer into it, the you know the temperature of the steak changes because I'm putting something colder into it, huh. and vice versa. And so, uh, whenever someone asks how hot the steak is, I'll say 135 degrees Fahrenheit, but not really. <laughs> That's how Heisenberg had his epiphany. <laughs> that was his Archimedes in the bathtub moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was at a steakhouse, and the server brought him a filet mignon. <laughs> Heisenberg said, how's this cooked? And the server said, medium rare. And Heisenberg said, you don't know that! <laughs> and then sold him meth. I think I know the story. <laughs> But isn't that wild that there's just a physical law saying you can't know stuff? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it makes me feel a lot better about my college GPA. <laughs> Imagine you're learning calculus and there's just a law that says you will never know calculus. <laughs> <laughs> also, I should say for accuracy, those things about the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, all those things apply to the baseball too, but you don't notice because the baseball is so much bigger. Mm -hmm. All right. Next difference. If I throw you a baseball, it moves normally, meaning it goes in straight lines unless there's a force on it. It bounces off of things. But if I throw you a photon, it moves really weird. Kellen, do you know the double slit experiment? Yeah. So for the, the listener's benefit. This yes, for their benefit. <laughs> <laughs> this is a really visual experiment, so I thought it'd be best to describe on a podcast. <laughs> The double slit experiment basically tells you if something moves like a particle or like a wave. And if any physicists out there are like, you're getting that super wrong, let's just agree to disagree as peers. <laughs> Imagine you're staring at a wall, and the wall has two slits that go from the top to the bottom. And through those slits, you can see a little further back is another wall. Now you do the thing that makes any situation cooler. You start firing a paintball gun. So your, your question is, when I fire things at this wall with two slits, what kind of pattern appears on the wall behind it? 
So if I fire paintballs, the back wall is basically just two vertical lines where the paintball shot through because paintballs, you know, move like particles. <laughs> but if you fire a sound wave and you're measuring where sound hits the back wall, something crazy happens, which is instead of like two lines, you might get five vertical lines or seven or a ton of lines because mm. the wave goes through those two slits and then it spreads out like two ripples and you get interference where in some places the peaks from one ripple cancel out the troughs from the other ripple. In some places, the peaks and troughs double up. So you get a bunch of lines on this back wall. I'm going to interrupt and real quick just to let everyone know that a paintball war is way more fun than a sound wave war. <laughs> That's a game where people with different colored shirts just sort of run around and scream at each other. <laughs> so if if these images are confusing, just Google image search double slit experiment. And I know that if you just heard that name, you would think the images would be horrific, like a thyroid operation. It's, it's not. <laughs> so I'm, I'm probably oversimplifying, but photons seem to be particles that move in probability waves. So imagine if, if you threw a baseball and it had an 80% chance of hitting the glove and a 20% chance of hitting your face, and you couldn't know what it would do until it did it. <laughs> It'd just be such a crazy world. Baseball would be interesting. <laughs> also, if you want to know who Dave is in a nutshell, just remember that in the same sentence, he said, oversimplify and then probability wave. <laughs> when I say I'm oversimplifying, what I actually mean is I might be wrong on this, but I'm not smart <laughs> enough to know. <laughs> That's such an intelligent way of saying that. <laughs> I wish that before every political argument at Thanksgiving that people would start with that. I may be oversimplifying this, but I think everyone should have a gun. <laughs> Try saying it before proposing. <laughs> I may be oversimplifying, but in sickness and health... <laughs> All right. Lesson three. If a tree falls and no one is around to hear it, does it exist? So the quick answer is no, which is why I'm for deforestation of forests I've never been to. <laughs> you just hire a bunch of deaf lumberjacks. <laughs> I think a lesson we should teach kids is if a tree falls and you hear it, don't snitch. <laughs> So this is less of a takeaway and more just a conversation I wanted to have with you, Dave, because I think I understood about 80% of this book, so maybe I need more clarity. At one point he says, quote, if an electron has nothing to interact with, it has no physical properties. So he talks about this idea that the interaction of things is the only thing that makes them real. So he seems to be saying that, for example, if I'm warming my hands over a fire, the fire only exists because of its interaction with my hands. My hands only exist in that they are being affected by the fire. But if neither thing were present, neither would exist. And it just, for a book that scoffs at the metaphysical, this seems more like magic than anything. <laughs> the way I understood it, so much of quantum mechanics has to do with probability waves. Like you shoot a photon, and rather than the photon just moving in a very direct, predictable pathway, 
it instead seems to move as a probability wave where all you can calculate is the distribution of where it might be until it interacts with something. Mm. And so if I understood him correctly, he's essentially saying we have that probability wave and only when it interacts with something else do we see the properties of an object or, or see it interact or actually be somewhere. Here's a quote from one of his other books. He says, Heisenberg imagined that electrons do not always exist. They only exist when they are interacting with something else. They materialize in a place with a calculable probability when colliding with something else. When nothing disturbs it, it is not in any precise place. It is not in a place at all. So I get the electron theory, but he treats it as this microcosm that that all objects are the same way. Like Schrodinger's cat in the box to the cat itself, it knows if it's asleep or not. But to you, it could be both asleep or not, or not exist at all. And so that's what I have a hard time grasping. So the Schrodinger's cat thought experiment was something posed by Schrodinger. And he was actually making fun of some of the conclusions of quantum mechanics. But he was basically saying, you have a cat in a box and you have an atom with a 50% chance that it will decay and cause the cat to be killed or not. If you are outside of the box and you don't know if it's decayed, then to you, the cat is both alive and dead. It is what's called a superposition. It's a combination of the probabilities of the two possible states, alive and dead. Mm -hmm. And so until you open the box and interact with it in some way, until you observe it, both of those things are true from your perspective. Mm -hmm. And what the author seems to be saying here is that the cat is interacting with that atom. So for the cat, the thing is true or not true. But for us, the outsiders who are not yet interacting, it exists in that superposition. It exists in that combination of the two states. And I'm just standing there going, who put this cat in a box? Which <laughs> takes me back to our book, The Sociopath Next Door. <laughs> so ultimately to me, I don't know what the point of, of this theory is or how it affects anything because it seems like an impossibility that something could never interact with anything. Like that state just doesn't exist. To me, that's like saying all water would turn into carrots if gravity didn't exist. It's like, well, gravity will always exist, so you can never prove otherwise, right? So what? what's the point of a third of this book? Anyway, <laughs> my takeaway from this is please tell your friends about this podcast. <laughs> otherwise, it won't exist to them. I do think Heisenberg's perspective is so funny because you know that thing you thought about as a kid, like what if everyone stops existing when I'm not looking at them? Or maybe I was just a narcissist kid. <laughs> Heisenberg is like, yeah, yeah. And also, what if everything was that way? <laughs> Yeah, Dear Evan Hansen is actually just a musical about the quantum realm. <laughs> when you need a friend to observe you. <laughs> All right. Lesson four. Maybe nothing is real up close. That sounds like a line from an artsy play about a failing marriage. <laughs> That's what I do at the end of every dumb independent film with an ambiguous ending. <laughs> My reaction is always like a shrug and I guess that was important. <laughs> so speaking of Ravelli's prose, he says, quote, If I see a forest from afar, I see a dark green velvet. Move towards it, the velvet breaks up into trees, trunks, branches, and leaves. The barks of the trunks, the moss, 
the insects. In every eye of every ladybird, there's an extremely elaborate structure of cells. Every cell is a city. But when we get down to uh, the quarks and gluons, swirling excitations of quantum fields, it's that quantum realm where we question the idea of what reality is, as we have so little understanding of how things work down there. So if, if none of this is making sense, you know how I felt reading the first two-thirds of this book. <laughs> so how, how he questions reality is, or our definition of what reality is, is what I found fascinating towards the end of this book. He gives this more sort of concrete example. He says, quote, This chair that stands before me, it is real objectively, but what does it mean that this whole is an object? The notion of a chair is defined by its function, a piece of furniture designed for us to sit on, but its characteristics only exist in relation to us. Color comes from the reflection of certain surfaces interacting with human retinas, and if I move the chair, it moves as a whole, but strictly speaking, not even that is completely true. And by the way, he doesn't answer that, which that's going to noodle around in my head forever. <laughs> and then he says, what is it that makes these pieces a single object? And so the takeaway for me is that ultimately none of this matters to your life <laughs> unless you're writing something about quantum physics. But I'm going to make it affect mine just so that reading this book wasn't a waste of time. Like the next time that I go to an Ashley Furniture and a salesman is like, hey, do you like this couch? I'm going to be like, but this isn't a couch except that we define it as such. May I look at your other assemblages of pieces that we've collectively agreed are whole entities based on their function? <laughs> and then he'll be like, I'm probably oversimplifying this, but I think you're a genius? And I'll be like, yes. I just meant like, where are your love sacks? <laughs> All right, random facts. If you feel confused by quantum mechanics... Here's an excerpt from A Short History of Nearly Everything. Bohr once commented that a person who wasn't outraged on first hearing about quantum theory didn't understand what had been said. <laughs> Heisenberg, when asked how one could envision an atom, replied, don't try. <laughs> so I love this quote that he cited from Douglas Adams, who said, The fact that we live at the bottom of a deep gravity well on the surface of a gas-covered planet going around a nuclear fireball 90 million miles away and think this is normal <laughs> is obviously some indication of how skewed our perspective tends to be. That's why I just try to always feel like I get it. <laughs> and now I, every box that I see, I check for a cat in it. I think that's the point of... <laughs> I don't check the box because me checking the box might be what kills the cat. <laughs> when they said curiosity killed the cat, they mean your curiosity. <laughs> I think something doctors should do is just throw in physics terms. You can take a patient's vitals and then with a serious face be like, you have wave function collapse. And it's not lying to say that. <laughs> or walk in the exam room like, yeah, I'm not liking your quarks. <laughs> Um, something that he touches on a little bit uh, that I've actually enjoyed when I want to blow someone's mind uh, is like <laughs> everything that you see, the color that it is, it is that color. 
Meaning that when your lights are on in your bedroom and you have a, I don't know, Dave, I imagine you having like a bright turquoise dresser with uh, like little um, matchbox cars for handles. Underneath the Lord photo, that is the only thing hanging up in my room. <laughs> That's a deep cut for our longtime listeners. Um, but when you turn your lights off and now boom... The dresser looks black because it's nighttime. Technically, now it is the color black. It's not a blue dresser with the lights off. It is just black because color happens in our eyes. You know, there are a dozen different forms of waves. We just happen to have eyeballs that pick up what we call visible light. But there's so much other stuff bouncing off of that object. And honestly, even when the light is on and my beautiful turquoise dresser is turquoise, <laughs> it's actually not even turquoise. It's just reflecting certain wavelengths of life. Sure. And then the experience of turquoise happens in my brain. <laughs> that, one, that was another fascinating part of the book, too, is when he talks about how in order for our brains to work more efficiently, most of what we see is the recreation in our head of what we think we are seeing. Yeah. It was something crazy, like 80 or 90% is seeing what our brain thinks we are supposed to see. You know, seeing like a, you know, a clown jump out of the back of a truck at you with chainsaws. I don't know what you've experienced, but... So I have two thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) Never go to that McDonald's. (laughs) Yeah, when they they franchise, they need a little more quality control on the different Ronalds. (laughs) My first thought is, I think the most common example of your eye making a prediction that you can see is when you're reading... And you read a word, but then you go back and the word has fully changed. Mm, mm -hmm. And for me, I think when it changes, it means that your eye predicted incorrectly the first time and now you're adjusting to what's actually there. Mm -hmm. You know that experience where it's like, I swear that was a different word. I saw a different word. If you've ever wondered if physics professors do drugs, here's a (laughs) quote from the book. External perception is an internal dream which proves to be in harmony with external things, and instead of calling hallucination a false perception, we must call external perception a confirmed hallucination. (laughs) And you know his girlfriend wishes he would just, like, play guitar or something. (laughs) (laughs) All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from Helgoland. One, you don't hate science, you hate the experience you had with it. Two, the best way to learn quantum mechanics is from a comedian who kind of gets it. Three, maybe nothing is real up close. Four, if a tree falls and no one is around to hear it, does it exist? And five, here's the answer to the Schrodinger's cat paradox. Poke holes in the box. (laughs) 